0: What is going on? It is another special extended edition of Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star Team, AvenueMachinery.ca Douglas Lake Equipment com i am here live in the uh, luxurious kintech studio at sportsnet 650 headquarters drancer is on location our guy our eyes and ears at canucks practice at ubc where they're scheduled to hit the ice uh, at 10 30 today drancer what's going on man
1: i'm not gonna lie to you jamie this may have been a mistake we'll see we'll see <laughs> uh, but i'm out here at ubc watching thatcher demko get put through the motions by ian clark mike yo and the new American League goalie coach, whose name I will butcher if I try to say it, so I, I will I will study up before calling him out. But they are on the ice. The tr- rest of the team will trickle on in about 25 minutes here. And look, these practices, they're too important. You know, we're going to see a lot and learn a lot from about how Bruce Boudreau plans to react to Brock Besser's expected absence to begin this season, um, whether Ilya Mikhaev is on the ice or not, and perhaps if, having seen three days now of Canucks training camp plus the preseason split squad opener uh, in both Calgary and Vancouver whether or not Boudreau finally makes some alterations to his lineup which may which may also tell us a fair bit about the state of some of the roster battles right and the pecking order uh, you know sort of as we round the first turn at Canucks
0: training camp. And, yeah, I mean, maybe look, if uh, if it doesn't go well with you out there at UBC, I mean, at the very least, maybe we'll see uh, how quickly you can hustle from UBC to uh, the Fairview Slopes <laughs> neighborhood. So we'll, I think we'll,
1: I think we'll be fine. We'll, we'll but, uh, learn
0: something today, one way or another, we'll Dresser. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, look. there's a lot on the line. A lot <laughs> on the line, but uh, I suspect we'll be fine. I just think there's going to be a little bit of, like, hockey um, sound effects That's fine. in the background. Right? I love so that. So we'll... we'll yeah, the pucks and and on and on, but eventually we'll be back into the studio where we can, you know, live broadcast practice the way the way God intended from the uh, from the old gondola.
0: Yes, indeed. 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or our in Vancouver online at Lumber. Dot com. Before we dive into some of the specifics that we're really going to be watching for today with the Canucks on the ice, as you mentioned, you know Ilya Mikheyev's status is a big one. How Bruce Boudreau reacts to the Brock Besser absence, all of that. You know, it does very much feel like we're kind of into the second stage or a new stage, at least, of training camp, of preseason, right? We had the actual camp in Whistler, a quick turnaround to the first uh, uh, split squad game on Sunday, then the first round of cuts yesterday. And and now we're into that next phase of things. So what in just kind of a general sense, not just today with, you know, Mikheyev status, but more broadly, what what are the things that you're looking for to watch and see what we see in the Canucks practice sessions this week?
1: This is always a really interesting week of training camp, Jamie, because I'm expecting first and foremost, the Canucks are skating in two groups today, right? So they've got a 10.30 a.m. practice and then sort of a second practice round at 12.30. And one of the main things that I'm expecting we'll see, and this is sort of boosted by the fact that I'm watching Thatcher Demko at the moment get put through the motions with, you know, presumably ahead of the first group. What I'm expecting to see is that we'll see two relatively equal groups. So 51 players left at training camp, 48 that I'd expect to, to be healthy enough to skate today, uh, assuming that Mikhaev is not on the ice, but, but he may be. That would move the number to 49. Um, He wasn't out ahead of practice with Justin Dowling for what it's worth or at least I didn't see him So that would seem to be a a positive indicator. Anyway, I I would expect to see, you know something like 25 to 28 Players in the first NHL group and I would think that that looks very much like um, a Canucks lineup, right? Like a Canucks lineup with a larger fringe That's sort of what I'm expecting to see from that first group and as teams get down to their numbers at this point in training camp, right? Um, the way that they divvy up the groups and, and granted, there may be a little bit of a head nod toward who's playing Thursday, right? Like, likewise on Friday, we might see a little bit of a head nod, maybe some sort of fringe players or HL contract guys will stay in the main group, uh, because they're playing, you know, against Seattle, either in Vancouver on Thursday or in Seattle on Saturday. But you know, you get down to your numbers and you begin to work on more detailed things, right? All of a sudden you start to see more detailed systems, focused drills, more teaching, um, Eventually, you'll see the special teams units, right? Eventually, you'll have pretty much an entire power play practice. I I would be surprised if we saw that today, but it's possible. Um, Certainly, by the end of the week or over the weekend, I would expect that we'll see exactly what Jason King and Bruce Boudreau are planning for the Canucks power play. So this is a really interesting set of practices and and you know partly why i'm here is there's an (laughs) awful lot to learn about the emphasis of the coaching staff going into sort of um beginning to get a chance to work with their main group their core group of players who they're counting on to help this team make the playoffs this year
0: well and that systems work that you talk about right and we can talk about the special teams focus maybe a bit as well but just kind of from the the five on five systems perspective, I mean, that's something that we heard very specifically referenced, obviously, by Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alveen at the end of last season. And I I think we're still kind of very much waiting for even a theoretical answer about how that's going to play out right and i know bo horvat at whistler uh, was asked about okay you know what are you what are you seeing differently in terms of structure what do you expect to see differently in terms of structure and you know his answer was well we're we're going to be a little more aggressive on the forecheck things like that 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 plays into some of the identity we saw from the canucks last year under bruce Boudreaux. but anything kind of beyond just increasing that that aggression and energy on the forecheck we haven't really heard specifically what to expect and it might be the case that well, that's because there's not going to be that many changes, and in the modern NHL, you know, there's only so much tactical variation anyway, so don't expect it to look significantly different uh, now that, the you know, Bruce Boudreaux and the new coaching staff has a full training camp to work with, but that's going to be something that will be really interesting to watch, is do, do we get a little more clarity, a little more detail Uh, And and some resolution on, you know, those structural changes that Jim Rutherford talked about. Are are we actually going to see anything like that put into practice here early in the preseason and then leading into the regular season?
1: Yeah. And for what it's worth, I mean, we saw a lot of forechecking and breakout focus at training camp. Now that's with a wider group, but you know, I don't think it's a coincidence, right? The forecheck is obviously the identity of this team. The breakout is something that management specifically suggested needs to be addressed at length. So you know, I don't know that we're shocked to to have already seen uh, drips and drabs of that, but I, I would expect we see a lot more now that you know the Canucks are going to be with a more NHL lineup. That there's going to be fewer um, CHL players, and honestly, fewer fewer the HL guys too. Especially once the Canucks split the groups and presumably go with like a Jeremy Colliton led. Uh, sort of group B, like a clear group B, Mm -hmm. which, you know, again, I don't know that they're doing that today necessarily. I would expect it strongly based on how most teams function and, you know, Boudreaux's emphasis on, on systems work, you know, at this training camp, right? Like that's something that I know he wants to spend a lot of time doing. And so we'll see, uh, we'll see exactly what it looks like today. Vasily Podkholzin, by the way, always first on the ice, first on the ice again. And he's wearing green. Uh, Green is commonly a, a, uh, jersey color worn by uh vancouver's second line so that would suggest anyway that he's not necessarily bumping up assuming miller and, and pearson are going to be part of this main group um to replace brock besser so that's you know n- not a not a clear data point yet but that's certainly the way it's trending based on pod colson's jersey color as he steps on the ice first Canucks skater uh, to do so
0: ahead of tonight, today's 10.30 a.m. practice. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's text in, uh, you're just there to try and beat Batch to the lineup reveal, but instead we might just get it live on the air. I'm, I'm loving yeah. it already, Drantz. The...
1: It's going to be really tough to multitask like that. <laughs> yeah, you
0: know, like I, I think well, you might just have to forfeit this one to Batch and, and rally well, for another day.
1: <laughs> what I've tried to do is I've tried to draft a guess. And the only way I'm winning is if my guess is right. And uh, I doubt that that's happening today. It's too, too many moving parts, too many bodies at training camp. And like I said, it won't surprise me at all if the Canucks go with like pretty much a main group, but then have sort of one pair or one line uh, that they're just planning to use Thursday that remains with the team for today's practice. You know, and, and it means nothing beyond you're playing Thursday and we want you to get these reps so that you're consistent with the rest of the team.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Canucks hour here on Sportsnet 650. As you can hear, Canucks players. Drance is out at UBC where the uh, Canucks practice is going to get going at 1030, but already some players A terrible on the mistake. On the, hmm, a sorry? terrible
1: mistake. We have to keep referring to this as a terrible error, by the way. <laughs> I just want to – in case anything goes wrong, I don't want anyone to tune in late and be like, what happened there? It's like, no, no, this – Drance has made a terrible mistake, and we're going to deal with the consequences. No, I as love the Show
0: goes on. I love it. I think every every Canadian sports radio show sounds better with hockey noises in the background. I, I legitimately true. believe that pucks going off the the post and off the boards and the skates. It's great. I love it. I wish we could just now, this play. This is a like...
1: very small room, though. This is not like your average <laughs> rink. This is going to be. Uh, there could be more than normal puck noise. Well, anyway, I'm excited. We'll, uh, I'm we'll excited fun. to
0: hear you drop down to radio or to a library voice as well, like we had to do in Whistler. <laughs> when, oh, yeah. when that's definitely teach- coming when the teaching sessions coming. were were happening. <laughs> so- <laughs> I, I like
1: I like to call it my Professor Snape voice. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's uh. Makes me feel more commanding, as it were. Vaguely threatening. Or, or more of a tor- turncloak, <laughs> uh, as,
0: as you prefer. 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar Lover text slide Again, Drance is on location at UBC where the Canucks will get going in about 15 minutes. Uh, we're going to learn a lot from how the lines stack up, from how the groups stack up in general. And, you know, as you said, uh, Drance, one of the things to watch, not just today, we probably won't see it today, in fact, but in this next phase of, of preseason in preparation for the regular season is the special teams work. Now, the power play side of that is going to be very interesting, I think, especially now with the absence of Brock Besser, right, to see how they adjust to see who gets to uh, figure into, you know, power play two. Uh, if Andre Kuzmenko, for example, or somebody else bumps up to power play one. We'll see if there's any additional wrinkles that Jason King and Bruce Boudreau have have tried to uh, tried to introduce or, or want to introduce to the power play. But also, we expect the power play to be very successful. The penalty kill, I think, is going to be really interesting. And I, I and there, look, there's only so much you can learn about how effective a penalty kill is going to be before it actually hits the ice in the regular season and goes up against teams that are trying their best to beat you. But I I am going to be really interested to see what we learn about the Canucks penalty kill and especially which personnel is going to feature on that special teams, right? Because, you know, we can talk about, okay, they need to coach the penalty kill in a different way, right? They need to do something. Maybe they need to be a little bit more aggressive. They need to try these different things. But so much of it comes down to personnel. Do you have the guys that can execute? Do you have the guys to be successful, to be at least, you know, a roughly average NHL penalty kill and the Canucks have a few kind of no-brainer choices, right? Obviously, Ilya Mikheyev is one. You know, you got to figure Curtis Lazar as a right-shot centerman is going to figure into the penalty kill as well. Beyond that, I'm really curious to see how much of a load does Elias Pettersson, uh take on the penalty kill? How about Bo Horvat? How much does do they still stick J.T. Miller there, even though they want to reduce his minutes a little bit? And I think depending on those choices they make and how those guys step up, that's probably going to have. A, a bigger impact on the success of the Canucks penalty kill than you know any kind of tactical changes that they might make to how that group runs
1: yeah we and we one thing that we may have seen deployment wise in the very first game of the season out at uh out at Rogers Arena that I, that I suspect may be signal rather than noise is wow well, I don't know if I'll go that far but that I found interesting anyway was that when the Canucks power play or penalty kill started right they matched uh, Bo Horvat with um, I think it was Phil DiGiuseppe, but it might have been um, it might have been someone else. But then it was Pedersen with Micaiah, mm-hmm. which I found interesting because it's a split of Pedersen and Horvat, who had pretty good chemistry as sort of like a missile second penalty killing group last season. Um, you know, come on after uh, the the first clearance is gained, and then play more aggressively than the first unit than the unit that's just counted on. Uh, To prevent the goal and get the puck down the rink so you know that unit was really good I think the key to Vancouver's sort of penalty kill glow up in the second half really was that Pedersen Horvat unit and Horvat in particular becoming you know a a playable penalty killer for the first time in his career what one of one of the biggest impacts of the Boudreaux sort of coaching change was that now with Mikhaev in the fold do you go something like Lazar Mikhaev or Miller Mikhaev um, do you keep Horvat and Pedersen together? Or could the club do something like have a Miller-Lazar mm-hmm. sort of, you know, uh, one, one, one guy to win the draw on either side, right? <laughs> Two good face-off winners, and then you're able to sort of script it so that your second missile group is now Mikhaev and Pedersen. A ton of sort of against-the-grain threat with that group, considering Mikhaev's breakaway speed and Pedersen's skill level. Pedersen's breakaway speed, too, on occasion, right? So, you know, I sort of wonder if we might see a little bit less Bo Horvat, even though he established himself as a really good option last year. Uh, That's just sort of one item that I, I don't know how much I read into it so much as it's something that made me wonder if the Canucks might double down on the approach that kind of worked after Brad Shaw took over, having one more conservative penalty kill unit to win the draw, get the puck out. And one more aggressive penalty kill unit that was really designed to harass opponents and just sort of uh, kill the last, you know, 30, 45 seconds of the first units, uh, first power play units, ice, uh, every time out. That's sort of of in my mind's eye what I'm wondering. I feel like that was hinted at by how the Canucks deployed their penalty killers in the first game. And we'll learn a lot more this week as Vancouver sort of gets into specialty.
0: Yeah, and there's a couple of caveats with that. Again, as you're acknowledging from just what we saw on Sunday, which is obviously, you know, uh, J.T. Miller wasn't in the lineup for that game. Curtis Lazar yep. was in Calgary, right? So the, it's you don't necessarily read that much into it. Now, having said that, if there's one thing we can say with a high degree of certainty, I would think, about the Canucks' penalty kill and how they're going to deploy is that when healthy, Ilya Mikheyev is going to... Eat, eat major minutes on the penalty kill right like that yep. is a huge part of why they brought him in he's excellent at it it addressed a clear area of need uh, on this team so he is not going to be a fringe piece of the penalty kill so the fact that he was paired with Elias Petterson, you know it would have been very easy to pair him with Bo Horvat for example right but the fact that he was paired with Elias Pettersson you know one as you said just the style of penalty kill that those two guys can have. You can you can very easily picture it being extremely aggressive, kind of that classic power kill uh, that we're seeing become more and more common across the NHL, you know, with McKay of speed and Elias Pettersson's skill and his ability to read the game. But maybe even more interesting than that to me is about, about what it says tactically is just, look, if Elias Pettersson is going to be paired – with Ilya Mikheyev, that's setting him up to potentially have a major role on the penalty kill. That's not going to be a, oh, we trot them out here or there, maybe when we want to be a little bit more aggressive. If you're playing with Ilya Mikheyev, you're going to be a major, major part of the penalty kill.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't read a ton necessarily into, you know, one preseason split squad game worth a penalty kill. I do. I do, James. I read a lot into it. <laughs> well, the, but the one thing I do take from it is if you were thinking about Horvat and Pettersson continuing as a pair and you had them both in the lineup, you would have used them together. Yep. Right? Um, If you were thinking about using Pedersen and and Mikhaev as a pair, and they're in the lineup together, you give them a first look and see if you, you know, what you see on the ice matches, what you see, what the mental picture you see when you draw the lines on the whiteboard. And that to me does say something, even if, you know, we have to be careful uh, about suggesting that it means everything is about to change in terms of Vancouver's penalty kill deployment.
0: No, I I'm not being careful, Drexler. Right? This is a, a sea change. A new era of the penalty kill is uh, is upon us in uh, in for the Vancouver Canucks. That's that's my official take on it. Uh, 650 Six fifty six uh, fifty. The Dunbar Lumber text line. You continue to get your thoughts in, but I, I do think. How they end up divvying up the minutes and the responsibilities between their three centers is going to be interesting. I'm just kind of thinking and, and building off the, you know, potential for Elias Patterson to have a bigger role on the penalty kill because the way we kind of – we all know they're going to be on power play one together when they're healthy, when they're in the lineup, at least to start the season. So they're going to get their minutes there. And then, you know, the way it was kind of divvied up at the beginning of training camp was JT Miller featured on what was likely to be – the clear-cut number one line at five on five, also kind of the matchup line with Brock Besser and Tanner Pearson, uh, and then you know Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson in, in more middle six kind of interchangeable lines, and then maybe you get Elias Pettersson some more minutes on the penalty kill. You don't play J.T. Miller as much there, but you try to you try to find other ways to extract value uh, out of Elias Pettersson, especially given his given his defensive skill set, and you know Brock Besser's injury throws. That kind of deployment a little bit into question because we don't know how JT Miller's line is going to look. That's something I'm really excited to see here in, in just a matter of minutes when they take the ice uh, at well, UBC. Well, here, there, here we there's go. There's
1: more guys filtering onto the ice, and it's Connor Garland. All Connor right. Garland moving up to play in a red sweater. We haven't seen line rushes yet, but he's wearing a red sweater, as are Miller and Pearson. And looks like Lazar is going to move onto Horvat's right wing with Pod Colson. That would, that would seem to be a little bit more of a defensive-looking line than the Pod Colson garland horvat group. Um, so that looks like, anyway, the first blush solution to the issue as we're seeing it unfold live out at UBC.
0: Okay, there you go. So Connor Garland skating with JT Miller and Tanner Pearson. Now that side of things, that part of it makes a lot of sense to me. And we kind of kicked it around briefly on the show yesterday when we were reacting to... Uh, Brock Besser's injury and the announcement of inj- his injury right Connor Garland veteran very smart very productive right winger maybe not your classic matchup guy but he- he's not exactly a liability and as I said smart trustworthy all of those things so it's very easy to see him just moving right up uh, and-, and sliding into that Brock Besser spot that makes a lot of sense Curtis Lazar playing on the right wing with Bo Horvat and Vasily Podkolzin to me, this feels like more than anything, kind of continuing to, I don't want to say slow play the Niels Hoaglander uh, situation, but maybe just not quite willing, as much as they've spoken highly of him, just kind of easing him up the lineup a little bit, right? Because the obvious play would have been move Niels Hoaglander somewhere into the top nine. I would not look at this and say, okay, we're probably gonna see Curtis Lazar skate with Bo Horvat and Vasily Podkolzin on opening night. It feels more of a a temporary alignment to me in that well, regard.
1: James. And let me let me provide an answer to that. Wearing blue practice sweaters out on the rink at the moment are Elias Pettersson, Niels Hoaglander, right. and Andre Kuzmenko. Ah. So Ilya Mikhaev perhaps absent okay. today. So this is sort of the solution to a two absent Two forwards absent problem that Bruce Boudreaux appears to be solving. Linus Carlson, by the way, also wearing a blue uh, a blue shirt. I would strongly suggest that he's the extra on that line. So, to recap it, top nines looking like this. Hoaglander with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Pearson, Miller, Garland, right? And then Lazar moving to the right side with Horvat and um, with Vasily Podkolzin, a little bit more of a classic checking line look from that group. And that's how the Canucks are lining up, at least based on the color of the practice sweaters, ahead of Tuesday's
0: practice out at UBC. So there you go. it's uh, The trip to UBC is paying off already, Drancer. Uh, you love to hear it. Uh, no Ilya Mikheyev on the ice. That That's something that we will chew on a little bit more. Yet.
1: Yet. Yes. I yes. want to
0: be clear. Yet. Yeah. Not part of of, of this the group that is out there currently right now so we'll give some more players uh, a chance to get on the ice we will break down the line combinations that uh, that transfer is reporting from UBC and we'll continue to talk about uh, what we're going to be looking for which players still need to step up uh, and make an impression here at Canucks training camp and in the preseason you can hit us up with your thoughts 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line more to come it is Canucks hour Sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you. Drantz are on location at UBC uh, for Canucks practice as they hit the ice after a day off yesterday. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team, Avenue avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Uh, I am coming to you live from the Kintec studio, Kintec Footwear and Orthotics Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. And, uh, Drance, we have an update on the, the battle between you and Batch to get the lines out, at least for the kind of uh, provisional line combos, the new ones that were out there. Rager says that officially on the Twitter timestamp, you beat Batch by one minute. So, so mark it up on the big board. You're, you're multitasking. You're getting the lines out there, Drantz. It's working for you out there.
1: Well, I had to get him back for sharing such a flattering photo of me on uh, on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I also think I may have confused him because I yelled his name during the break, and I said, no Myers. <laughs> Tyler <laughs> Myers, absent from uh, absent from today's practice, along with Ilya Makayev, of course, Brock Besser. Those are the notable absences. But the Canucks skating with two extra forwards, Neil Zamon and Linus Carlson, which is a pretty interesting selection. Actually, yeah, two, two extra forwards here today. And uh, eight defensemen. So Danny DeKaiser among them, by the way. So I think that gives us a pretty good handle now on exactly what some of the fringes of these roster battles look like, right? Mm-hmm. Philip Giuseppe, firmly in the chase pack, right? Firmly in the chase pack with a shot at you know, potentially cracking this bottom six forward group, particularly in the event that there are multiple injuries ahead of him, as there are today, right? Neil Zaman, um, Bruce Boudreaux was really impressed with his details of training camp, said so publicly, know the organization, is really happy with his skating in particular. He's got a size and speed combo that I think they find uh, very interesting, very interesting on the uh, as a potential fourth line fill-in, uh, so he's obviously going to get a longer look here minus carlson i think might be the surprise but you need an extra for the top six right and with right. besser and makayev absent he might be one of those guys who's sort of sneaking in but to me de kaiser remaining with this group i think speaks volumes and it almost makes you wonder like would he be with this group um, were Myers healthy, or would Myers have supplanted a, a player like a Kyle Burrows, who you know obviously played games for this team last season? I think ingratiated himself quite significantly with this fan base as a local guy who's you know willing to answer the bell and does an awful lot right, plays within himself and responsibly, right? Um, and also beating out Christian Willannon, who was a standout in the Calgary split squad game for the Canucks team that lost four um, nothing, you know probably damning him with faint praise there but nonetheless (laughs) was one of the better players uh, on review when I watched the game later Um, I thought I thought him and Brady Keeper were both uh, very good very solid Uh, but yeah DeKaiser seems to have the inside track still to this point and that's despite you know what I'm hearing um, in terms of the organizational think or organizational thinking on this which is you know they share anyone who's watching these games concerns about DeKaiser's foot speed. Right. There's an understanding that, you know, yeah, it's a thing. And if it wasn't a thing, the guy would have a contract. The guy would have a one-way deal. So the organization's continuing to get a really good look here. You'd think that he'll get another preseason game this week, at least one of the two, maybe both of the two. Um, And this is just all part of the management group continuing to look for their options in terms of upgrading the blue line. And as part of that process really spending time digging in to what options they have in-house. We saw them take that long look at Jet Wu over the course of training camp, right? Feels like something similar, but a little bit higher stakes going on with Danny DeKaiser, who's playing with Tucker Pullman, once again, in what we'd look at as a projected top four role. Um, On the other side of training camp, on the other side of his preseason debut, Danny DeKaiser has not been dislodged from that top four perch he's held down since camp opened.
0: Uh, lots to get into here, right? With the, uh, the, new, the new configuration of Canucks personnel, Marcus and Gibson's text in. I haven't heard this much excitement in Drancer's voice since the Miller trade fell through on the draft floor. This is what we live for. <laughs> Fresh line combinations to chew on. Fresh, uh, uh, I love it. Yes, it's exactly what we're here for. Um, so I'll, I'll just run through them uh, quickly. And this is courtesy of Brendan Bachelor, and I just happened to Why? see his first. Just happened Why? to see his first. I'm on the radio with you. Man, <laughs> no, so, go with batch. So it's yeah. good. I use I use batch too. So we have uh Pearson, Miller, and Garland as the first line, Pod Colson, Horvat, Curtis, Lazar, Pedersen in between Kuzmenko and Hoaglander, and then Joshua Dickinson and Di Giuseppe. Uh, Linus Carlson skating with an extra with the Pedersen line as an extra with the Pedersen line, Niels Amon skating as an extra on that fourth line. On defense, you have uh, Oe and Hughes. Hughes, of course, on the right side on that pairing. Danny DeKaiser and Tucker Poolman, Travis Dermott, Kyle Burrows, Jack Rathbone, and Luke Shen rounding things out. So no Brock Besser, as we knew, no Ilya Makayev, no Tyler Myers, which is interesting, not something we were anticipating seeing at Canucks practice at UBC today. So, okay, we'll we'll, we'll dive into it, all the various implications. Now, I think a lot of this, and I you never know exactly when we're talking about okay, the coaching staff wants to get more of a look at X, more of a look at this player, more of a look at this combination. You can never know—is that because they really like what they what they're seeing, or they were wanting to see a little bit more, and they're giving the player a little bit more chance to show that, right? And what? you know, I wonder with uh, with with Linus Carlson, no uh, for example, skating as an extra on that line. What? You know, Sheldon drives would be a pretty easy fit as as kind of your top six. Uh, offensive uh, fill-in potentially, right? But they also know what they have in Sheldon Dries. So I don't know if this is if this should be read as Oh, Linus Carlson has kind of jumped over up the pecking order over Sheldon Dries as much as it, as it is we're less familiar with this player, so we're going to give him a little bit more of a chance here. We're going to get that classic longer look. It, you know, as much as we were really hanging on what was going to happen with the forward group transfer. I find the battle and, and the, the hierarchy that's shaping up on, um, on defense to be almost equally fascinating. And, you know, the DeKaiser-Poolman pairing in particular for me, because I've been trying to parse, okay, we've seen Rathbone and Shen together. We've seen Dermot and Poolman together. Where do those two pairings stand in relation to each other, right? And as they set up right now, you know, technically it's DeKaiser and Poolman higher up the lineup together and it's Rathbone and Shen at the bottom. But given what we've seen from Danny DeKaiser and given, as you said, some of the concerns that management has about Danny DeKaiser, I'm not sure that being paired, that Tucker Pullman being paired with him is necessarily a massive vote of confidence in that player either.
1: No, I don't think it is. Um, You know, I think they're, well, look, the one thing about a Pullman-DeKaiser pair, right, is if you were looking for two players who you felt could give you a fair bit defensively right um who could maybe be a low-end shutdown pair in a top four role i guess you can see it you know i guess you could see it i mean i think more than anything it illustrates what what remains my my biggest concern about this club right which is the quality of of their defense Mm -hmm. overall um well, look, someone needs to go up if Myers isn't here. And Pullman, you know, uh, one thing we can sort of read into this, too, is Pullman, if healthy, right? Um, perhaps the organization's more comfortable bumping him further up the lineup than they are Luke Shen, even though Luke Shen outperformed Pullman in a top-four role, right? Certainly outperformed him in terms of his chemistry with Quinn Hughes, right? Mm-hmm. They both played with Quinn Hughes, and one guy um, did that job better, uh, clearly, right? Uh, last season, and that was Shen. But, you know, it's Pullman who gets the first assignment up. Now, that could be because they just want to keep things very consistent for Jack Rathbone, particularly given the way he's performed at camp to this point. But I sort of wonder, um, you know, what does this tell us about Pullman? And, And likewise with the forwards, right? Connor Garland bumping up to take Besser's spot. I love that. You know, there's a lot of coaches, organizations, people in the league who simply because of Garland's size, right, would say that guy can't play on a, you know, heavier matchup-oriented line, right? But it doesn't matter where Garland plays. It doesn't matter how many minutes he gets. He helps his teams outscore their opponents five-on-five, right? He works hard. He wins his fair share of battles. Pound for pound, he's one of this team's better battle winners without question. And I love that That's just like, yeah, Garland, obviously, he's the best right-handed forward we have without Mm -hmm. Besser in the lineup I think that's gutty I I like a lot of uh that in particular now again a little bit qualified I'm not saying we know that Garland would have been the first choice because Mikhaev's out right would Mikhayev have been the first choice if he was here today to bump up to that first line you know, we, we can't know that. We won't know that until he returns to the lineup healthy, which hopefully we'll get an update from Bruce Boudreau shortly, and hopefully he won't miss too much time. But, you know, I like that aggressiveness from Boudreau, and I think that that tells you something, and what I think it tells you is very good. Like, it's very good process. It's a smart way of looking at these various players. Um, also, one last one in this vein, Lazar moving up to the third line, right? the fact is is that their free agent center signing three years one million clearly sort of uh, heads and shoulders above the, the other fourth liners that you know today it's Joshua Dickinson D Giuseppe um, you know Neil Zaman. there's a lot of guys in that group that this organization's been impressed with to this point like I think they've been very happy with the jump that Dickinson has shown they're certainly um, considering Philip D Giuseppe's case at length but to have Lazar be the guy who jumps up right away, up to the third line, I think speaks volumes two above Vancouver's bottom six pecking order. And that one unqualified, right? Like Curtis Lazar has clearly ingratiated himself very early and very significantly um, for Boudreaux and the Canucks coaching staff.
0: So you talk about Garland going up to the first line and the process behind that decision. And again, who knows if it could have been different if Ilya Mikheyev was was healthy and available today. One of the things and it, look, this is, I think, a theme throughout Bruce Boudreaux's coaching career, but we're seeing it play out not just last season since he took over, but in training camp as well. One of the, I've mentioned this before, but something I really like is just, you know, don't overthink it, right? Oh, hey, you're, you're ta- your first line right winger was injured. Who's your next best right winger? Let's put him up there. Let's get it yep. into that spot, right? Let's bet on talent. Let's get our most talented players on the ice in, in positions where they can contribute a lot. It sounds so simple, but you see NHL coaches, you see coaches across sports all the time. Think beyond that. Try to outsmart themselves a little bit and end up making suboptimal decisions. And I like Bruce Boudreaux's willingness to just kind of stick to that principle. I'm going to bet on talent. I'm going to rely on my talented players. And, you know, you talk about Garland and whether he's a fit on that kind of classic heavy line or a line that, that, that figures to play some really tough matchup minutes for the Canucks. Well, you know... Miller, Pearson, and Besser, the reason they were successful, yeah, they tilted the ice in favor of the Canucks, and that has a domino effect down the lineup, but, you know, the way they tilted the ice was by playing really well in the offensive zone, by getting the puck down low, by cycling, by by, by having those long shifts in the offensive zone, and, yeah, obviously, at some point, you need to be able to get the puck from the opposition to set that, set that up, but... Connor Garland is really good in the offensive zone. Connor Garland is really good on the cycle. Yeah. Pound for pound. He can win a lot of those battles. He's not going to be as good at it. I don't think as Brock Besser, but he's he's a very productive player in part because he is really good in those down low situations as well. So that's a line that can still project to have a significant territorial advantage, even if it doesn't look like you're kind of classic. Oh, you know, these are the guys we're going to throw out against Nathan McKinnon line. Well, guess what? The Canucks, especially with Besser and Mikheyev out of the lineup, they're not going to have that kind of line. So why not at least go to a group that you think can dominate offensively, can can control that territorial edge, maybe just in a different way than we're used to seeing?
1: It's a really interesting point, and I think you're dead on. And and more than that, I'd add that among Canucks forward lines that played 100 minutes last season, you know, it's not a long list, by the way, because of the amount of injuries Mm -hmm. they had, because they changed coaches midstream right you have two different sort of thoughts with the same group over the course of the season but among those lines you will find pearson miller and garland and actually they're one of three forward lines that the canucks used last season just three that played over 155 on five minutes the other two by the way pearson miller with besser and mot lamico highmore
2: <laughs> pour <laughs> one actually, out
1: pour
0: one out for the Mot Lamico Highmore line. like one out
1: that line actually led all Canucks forward lines in, in ice time as a trio, and not by a little bit, by like 60 minutes. Uh, indispensable, ultimately, to Bruce Boudreaux as last season went along. Anyway, uh, the Pearson-Miller-Garland crew group uh, actually had better underlying numbers than the than the line did with uh, Besser. However, if you look at it in terms of actual goal differential, um the edge is actually more significant (laughs) the edge is actually more significant so they outscored their opponents two to one with garland in that configuration two things we can take away from this one jamie and nailed it that line can mimic the same type of territorial dominance that the besser line did but also but also that line right has familiarity right Mm -hmm. and so as boudreau rolls the dice with uh niels hoaglander I'm not saying he's rolling the dice. I'm saying he probably views it that way considering where Hoaglander was last season, right? As they integrate Ilya Mikhaev into this ro- into this lineup, as they you know give Kuzmenko some time to adjust to the speed of the NHL game, right? As they hedge their bets on whether or not Vasily Podkolzin takes a huge step forward in his age 21 campaign, right? As they look through all of the uncertainty lower down the lineup, right? Having Besser, Miller... Pearson gives you a level of certainty, right? A level of familiarity between them that I'm sure allows, you know, this coaching staff to feel a little bit more comfortable tinkering with their other lines. And Besser going out, what do they go back to? They go back once again to a to a line mate who knows those players, played over 150 minutes with them last season, had success, right? So again, there's a there's one other factor that we're sort of seeing the Canucks prioritize here and that's like certainty right They're 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 prioritizing having that sort of one trump card that you know you can play against opponents top lines uh which once again to me speaks to the fact that regardless of what is said about you know we don't have a first line we have a one a one b and a one c line right or we're gonna we have a top nine we don't have a top line right like whatever catchphrase we're gonna hear eventually the way that Boudreaux has handled Miller's line through—we
0: uh, might have just changed it up oh, today. Sorry, you're back. Consistent? No, you're yeah, back. You're cons- back.
1: Good, good. But but consistent with what they've done to change it up today, right? Boudreaux continues to treat that Miller line like it's line one. Make no mistake about that. We're we're seeing it once again. More evidence for that file.
0: Uh, Nate from Langley texts in for a defensive shutdown line for the Tufts. Why not go with Pearson, Horvat, and Lazar? You have a left-hand and right-hand face-off option, and Horvat already has experience playing with both Pearson and Lazar. I'd love to know your thoughts. And you know, I think part of the reason Nate is it was contained in what Drance was just saying there. You know, two of the line, two of the trios for Canucks forwards that saw significant playing time together last year began with a Pearson and Miller combo, right? And whether it was Garland on the wing with them or Besser on the wing with them, both versions of that line were extremely successful. So, they know. Very one of the things you you can look at the results from last year and one of the things that's going to jump out to you is Tanner Pearson was very very effective playing alongside JT Miller, and I understand to a certain degree. I understand, you know, fans look at the lineup and they're excited by Kuzmenko they're excited by Pod Colson, Hoaglander, the young players with upside. And there's always this kind of instinct to say, well, why is Tanner Pearson stapled to that first line spot? And the reason is the results were extremely good when he was playing with JT Miller. And if you want JT Miller to be able to shoulder uh, some of those tough defensive minutes, you're going to need a guy like Tanner Pearson on his wing. And and again, to what you said, Drance, there's an element of certainty. You can rely on it. You feel like you can bank on that because they had so much success as a duo last season like the actual configuration you gave Nate right Pearson Horvat Lazar yeah I'm sure that would be an effective uh, line that could play some really tough minutes I have no issue with that but I also completely understand the reluctance to move Tanner Pearson away from JT Miller they were really good they were really good together last year no matter uh, who was on their wing whether it was Garland or Besser
1: yeah well I'm sure Bo Horvat would be in favor of the line that uh, (laughs) that, um, Nate just spelled out but you know if you want to play Mikhaev with Patterson, right? If you want to see what that looks like, um, you know, I don't think you can throw Kuzmenko into Tufts right now. You know, I just don't. No. I don't think the defensive awareness is there. You know, I, I think about some of what we saw in those scrimmages at camp where his recognition of like when he had to be F3 coming back into the zone just wasn't quite there. And that's okay. He's a smart player. We've seen the way he sees the ice and thinks the game with the puck on his stick. The other side of it is just, you know, adjusting to the North American game, right? And we saw this last year with Vasily Podkolzin, right? Like, I watched Vasily Podkolzin morph from a guy who literally didn't know where to look on in-zone play into a guy who was making a real difference playing heavy hockey for this team down the stretch, right? The, the learning curve when you're a guy who works hard and has you know, a high work rate like Pod Colson does, like, it's fast. It's not going to take him, you know, till February, you know, of of 2023. Like, he's probably going to figure out in six weeks, but you're going to have those six weeks, and you need to allow him to figure it out, you know, against competition that's not going to punish every single mistake the way the absolute best players in the world can. And so, you know, I just don't see that as as an out-the-gate option. By the way, Canucks are doing um, some rush drills. That include a a back checking element those are always the drills that are the worst like you just you just know that they suck and uh yeah we're seeing a lot of tired players here a lot of hands on uh, a lot of hands on knees following some of these uh rush and back check drills oliver ekman larson by the way uh just deposited an absolute beauty on a two-on-one so that's what's going on at ubc in
0: addition to new lines and new implications i was wondering uh i was wondering what flavor of practice we might see given some of the commentary from Jim Rutherford about the team getting out worked uh on Sunday yep. so yeah no surprise to see high energy yep. and, and some of those drills that really have guys uh leaning over well. and uh, and sucking air after them
1: and and very little teaching <laughs> very little <laughs> teaching very little systems work uh lots of pace drills lots of pace drills to this point some battle stuff too Uh, We'll keep, of course, everybody posted as practice continues Uh, to unfold.
0: Just uh, before we go to break here, Devin and Saskatoon texts in, hey, guys, can we talk about how insanely skilled a line of Hoaglander, Pedersen and Kuzmenko is? And, yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting line. That's a line that has the potential to be pretty fun. You know, I'll say from my perspective, and I don't – this isn't blaming the coaching staff because, hey, injuries came up. uh, They had to juggle things. I'm somebody who would really like to see Elias Pettersson take that next step as a a center who is less sheltered, right? Who can play against other teams, top opposition, who can log some of those tough minutes that we're talking about. I think that's really important for the next step in his career. Now, having said that, again, you react to new situations as they come up. I can also see the value of having Pettersson on a line that is really going to be asked, to, to perform offensively. That's going to be given really good offensive opportunities, and, and that's how it shapes up uh, with Hoaglander and Kuzmenko on his wings. We've seen Patterson and Hoaglander when they have had the chance to play together, have some chemistry. I know there was a stretch where it was uh, Patterson, Hoaglander, and Pod Colson and it was a similar thing, right? Hey, don't worry so much about the defensive tough minutes. Go out there, produce offense. They had a little bit of success uh, doing that last year, right? So, that line, again, as a way to, okay, you know, we're back to the drawing board. The lines we wanted to have on opening night, they're not going to work out now. What can we come up with to replace them? I don't mind the kind of ultra offensive, you know, Pedersen go out there and help these guys uh, gain some confidence and put up some points line either.
1: No, uh, I mean, I, I I've, look, Hoaglander, Kuzmenko, Pedersen, sign me up. That sounds fun as anything. Uh, I really want to watch them uh, get a look. You know, again, I think we need to be a little bit patient with Kuzmenko. I haven't learned a lot of things that I'm sort of keeping as, like, real tells about what we're going to see this season. But one thing I am sort of leaning toward, having watched four days of training camp and, you know, um, a, an additional practice session today and, and the first game of the preseason, like, I, I think if you're expecting Kuzmenko to be – you know, a high-end, second-line caliber forward on day one, I, I think you're going to have to curtail your expectations just a bit. That's not to say he won't be there by Christmas, but I think, I think a day-one expectation of him being at that level is probably a little high. So we'll see. I think the idea of bringing him along slowly with Pedersen and Hoaglander or Pedersen and Mikhaev, um, sort of a little bit further down the lineup probably is a third line in terms of usage, right? Um, you know, I, I think that's probably a really good spot for him to begin to make an impact uh, in the NHL because I, I I think asking for too much more than that, I just think it's going to be uh, too much too soon and probably set the organization up and Canucks fans too um, for disappointment.
0: 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dumbbarlumber.com We will continue to react to Canucks practice. They're on the ice at UBC. Drancer is there as well. Plus, Jonathan Wall, former member of the Canucks front office, will join us at 1130 as well to talk about, you know, what's going on in a front office at this time of year, uh, some of the salary cap questions that are facing the Canucks as well. All that, lots more to come. Another bonus extended edition of Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. <clears throat> Welcome back to Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, the second Canucks Hour of the day. Another extended bonus edition here <laughs> all week. Yeah, Canucks Hour times two. Uh, I'm Jamie Dodd. The laugh you hear is my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team for The Athletic. He is live on location at Canucks practice at UBC as we were di- diving into all of the uh, the new wrinkles, the adjustments made by the coaching staff in light of some absences. We'll go back to that in a second. Canucks hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, Avenue avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. And I am live from the Kintec studio, Kintech footwear and orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintech.net. Uh, 650, 650. Yeah, we've seen lots of new uh, line changes, uh, line combinations and, and defense pairings uh, at UBC. Uh, you know, Drancer is there on the ground getting it to us uh, as it happens. And, you know, Drans, I wanted to talk a little bit today because we, we've heard from management and the coaching staff about some players who have really impressed them so far, right? We know Niels Hoaglander is on that list. Phil DiGiuseppe, uh, Archer Silov's in that guys who have stood out for all of the right reasons. But I'm also wondering as we enter, you know, we talked about it earlier of his kind of next phase of preseason of training camp. Who are the guys that that still need to step up and, and leave a little bit more of an impression, right? Who are the guys that still have some work to do, Uh, over the next week or so here with the Canucks. And, you know, this could be to earn a spot on the team, to earn a particular role, whatever the case may be. 650-650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. And, you know, a guy who pops up near the top of my list, and it's somebody who might actually benefit from some of the forward absences because it just eases some of the pressure to be in that lineup or some of the competition to be in the lineup on opening night. But a guy who pops up for me is Dakota Joshua. And... That's not to say he's been bad, right? It's more that he hasn't been particularly noticeable so far in the on-ice activities. But we also know this is a player that management invested in, that they're very, very excited about, right? That they, they're they counting on to be an important part of the Canucks' bottom six mix. You know, I also look at it as he he profiles as kind of a twelfth forward on a good team, doesn't figure to play a role in special teams, and... You know, that's kind of a classic player that needs to make an impression at training camp, that needs to earn a role coming out of training camp. uh, And he hasn't really shown that yet. He hasn't really shown that he deserves 100% to have that role on opening night.
1: You're on Dakota Joshua, right? Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's a good pick. And I'd add, too, you know, we talked about this a little bit, and we'll talk about it a little bit more with John Wall, but the Besser ailment, right, I don't think... I don't think managing the Besser ailment necessarily makes the Furland capture picture on opening day cloudier. Not necessarily. What's more tricky with managing Besser is just where you place him when you set your opening day roster so that it doesn't infringe on your ability to maximize that capture, but also allows you to get him back into the lineup as quickly as you can, considering his caliber as a player. Joshua, however... You know, as a result of, for example, Justin Dowling being hurt, right? Justin Dowling's going to have to be injured on roster or IR or something, especially if he's not healthy enough to go on waivers or play uh, at the start of the season. And Joshua's cap hit being 70K larger than Philip DiGiuseppe's is the sort of small margin that really matters when you get to the point of making some of those final cuts particularly for a team that's going to need to place a big contract on LTI and maximize the space that they they gain uh, from from capturing that. So, you know, I agree with you. I think Dakota was a really good pick as a guy who needs to show some, just a little bit more, a little bit something more. I, I would add Kyle Burrows, Kyle Burrows into that mix. And then, you know, I think some of the guys who've already shown well still have more to show. Like, sure. I, think, I think Niels Hoaglander and Jack Rathbone... You know they're not in a position where they can leave any doubt here right you don't make camp because you play well you know or you don't make the team because you play well in the first three days of camp you make the team because you do not relent over two and a half weeks and so you know I think Rathbone and Hoaglander still have a lot to gain from continuing to perform at the level that they have to this point in camp right They're they're off to like a good start right they've 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 got a nose lead at the at the first turn but there's three more turns to go here, and they're going to have to keep pumping.
0: yeah, the um, just quickly on the Dakota Joshua thing because i feel I feel pretty comfortable kind of mapping out a depth chart uh, in terms of forwards right, and who stands to to move into the lineup and all of these certain things. I feel pretty confident of that, and there's always surprises, but you know just quickly in Dakota Joshua. As you said, Phil DiGiuseppe, who's in that same sort of category where, okay, bottom six guy doesn't really sp- play special teams. Now, he he's valuable and effective in a different way than Dakota Joshua, more of his skill and his hands. Joshua already obviously brings that element of toughness. But in a lot of ways, in terms of how you're going to use them, they profile pretty similarly. And one guy has showed up and impressed uh, management. The other guy hasn't necessarily. And as you said, when, when the margins are that fine for that type of roster spot, every little bit of performance counts one of the names yeah go ahead one
1: one last thing one last thing about joshua that needs to be noted here is while he profiles somewhat similarly to di giuseppe he has one big advantage and that is he's a larger gentleman with a history of playing a little bit tougher a little bit bigger and you know that makes joshua unique relatively speaking among this among this group right um that's going to be his calling card here now i think he'll have to show it at some point to make it to make it hold up but when you have that and when you have a coach that likes veteran players right and is um intent on winning now right being sort of the answer to it does our team need to be harder to play against mm-hmm. is a really good edge to have at this point regardless of how you
0: perform yeah and i think that's Probably the major reason that Dakota Joshua would have started the proceedings at training camp, you know, clearly ahead of Phil DiGiuseppe in the race to be on on that fourth line. But yeah, it's it's just it's not a position where you can coast through exhibition, right, and preseason and just remain in that spot uh, without stepping up and, as you said, showing it, right, demonstrating that you can bring that element of grit, that element of toughness that makes you more valuable than some of the other options. Uh, 650-650, we're talking about which players still need to step up and prove a little bit more for the Canucks as we inch closer to the regular season. And you named a player that I wanted to talk about and more just maybe as an entry point into a discussion about the defense in general. and And that's Kyle Burroughs. I think we were both maybe a little bit surprised, Drancer, on day one of training camp when we got the groups and Kyle Burroughs was skating, you know, on what looked to be an AHL player, uh, pair, right? With the with the addition of Danny DeKaiser, you probably would have said Kyle Burroughs was ninth on the Canucks uh, uh, depth chart, and that's despite him playing a bunch of NHL games for them and performing really admirably, stepping in and doing an impressive job uh, as a fill-in defenseman last season for Bruce Boudreaux. Now, with the Myers absence... You know, no surprise that Burroughs moves up as one of the, the eight defensemen on the ice with the main group for the Canucks at UBC today. But we talked a little bit about the DeKaiser-Pullman pairing, right? And then you've got Dermott and Burroughs and Rathbone and Shen. And I just have a really hard time kind of making sense of how those pairings fit together and where they stand in the hierarchy of, of the Canucks coaching staff's mind, right? Look, if the Canucks had to play an NHL regular season game tomorrow... I know which two pairs I would be sending out there behind OEL and Hughes. It would be Rathbone and Shen and Dermott and Burroughs because I don't trust the Kaiser Pullman pairing right now. That's how I would line it up. But the fact that Burroughs was all the way down at ninth on the depth chart to start training camp, I'm not sure at all that Canucks, the Canucks coaches feel the same way. And does it, does it speak uh, poorly about what they've seen of, of Travis Dermott so far? But he's paired with Kyle Burroughs. So I agree with you. Kyle Burroughs obviously has some work to do to kind of regain that standing I'm also just going to be fascinated to see how this battle the battle for all of the other spots basically now with Tyler Myers healthy he's obviously getting one of those spots but with him out of the picture it it looks like basically all four of those spots behind OEL and Hughes are up for grabs
1: yeah well and Travis Dermott has left practice um didn't see exactly what happened but um was helped to the locker room by the medical staff um not sure, again, if he was hit by a puck or if it was a, a collision, but Travis Dermott has now left the ice as you know tough injury luck continues to befall the Canucks throughout training camp. Um, we'll see. We'll get an update from Boudreaux after practice, but uh, another, another injury, this one on the blue line, um, with r- potential ramifications up and down the lineup, right? Injuries at this time of year not only complicate things from a cap perspective, but obviously open up a ton of jobs. Um, hopefully, hopefully... Dermott's just got a stinger. Hopefully he's back uh, for this practice, right? Hopefully there's no absence that we even have to ask about at the end of it. But um, for now, Dermott helped off the ice by medical staff and no longer practicing out at UBC. Uh,
0: More good news. More good news coming for the Canucks. As you said, way too early to read anything more uh, than what you just said about Travis Dermott leaving in the ice. Uh, Kevin and Coquitlam says... Uh, good morning. I just got in the car. I've been listening to the program. I keep hearing that Tyler Myers is out. What happened and how long? We don't know. We don't know just yet. We'll uh, we will see if we get an update from Bruce Boudreau when the Canucks wrap-up wrap up practice at UBC. As soon as we do have more information, we will get it to you as quickly as possible, but a bit of a surprise absence for Tyler Myers at Canucks skate today.
1: Yeah, I didn't notice anything in the preseason opener. Did you?
0: No, I didn't notice. Anything. There was certain, I don't so, I didn't see anyone speculating or wondering what was going to be the case with Tyler Myers it it pretty much completely unexpected as far as I can tell
1: yeah no I didn't I didn't notice anything I'm just going to check this shift chart but um, there was nothing that stood out to me from that game or from the sort of end of that game in terms of Tyler Myers's uh, usage or um, any any sense that he was hurt and look maybe he's maybe he's with the second group for practice habits reasons maybe he's you know not playing in any of the other preseason games this week tons of possible reasons for it but Certainly, um, impl- the, impl- the obvious implication is that, in fact, uh, there might be something there. And, you know, that's tough. That's, that's a very tough one. And the club will obviously hope um, to have Tyler Myers, who, who, you know, you'd expect to play major, major minutes for this team. Yeah, he, he took two shifts in overtime. So yeah. he took two shifts in overtime. He played, um, you know, all game. Nothing, nothing obvious in the game itself we'll, we'll know more presumably once Boudreau talks after practice
0: yeah and I mean as you said look he's going to play major minutes he's going to uh, he's gonna be the third highest minutes man for, for the Canucks Blue Liners that's, that's just the way it is the way this group is set up at least early in the season unless somebody else really steps up and claims that role and you know as much as people like to complain about Tyler Myers and I understand the limitations of the player and obviously the salary I get all of that but you remove him from the picture, and, yeah, it becomes a lot more complicated uh, to put together a blue line that you feel even remotely good about with the pieces that they have on hand. Uh, Fish Dancer texted, in, I was so excited for a fresh season. Injuries piling up. One NHL defense pair now listening to you guys. It's just getting frustrating. Look, we don't know anything about what's going on with Tyler Myers or Travis Germany yet, so we, we yeah. can all just. Uh, all, all we know at this point is
1: the Besser won't open the season with the team, and granted, that's a massive loss. But I think the vibes around this team are far less chaotic than last year, right? I mean, I I left training camp last year thinking, oh, boy, this team's not going to be able to kill penalties. Um, The Besser or the Pedersen-Hughes absences look bad. Uh, Brock Besser is already hurt because that happened last year, too. Um, you know, the Sutter absence loomed large. The Hammonick mystery loomed large and and further sort of soared soared the vibes around the team. Uh, Brady Keepers broke, you know, his uh, fibula and tibia uh, at training camp and was, um, you know, down in an enormous pain at training camp. Like, we have not... This is not comparable. This is really not comparable. I came out of training camp last year feeling really dour about the club's chances. These... You know to this point it's frustrating as they mount I understand but the vibes around this team the extent of the injuries um, the feeling that you get just watching the group work together uh, and talking to people around them um, very different night and day uh, relative to what we saw last year so I anyway i Am not sound and pressing the panic button just yet. I'll let you know if I do.
0: Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I look. I, I look forward to it. I'm
1: not. I'm not even hovering above it. Like th- <laughs> I'm not even covering it. Like threatening to push it. Like ah, ah, ah. uh ah I'm not even doing that. I'm. Uh, you know, this this happens. Every team's gonna get nicked up when you play a dangerous game. You know, every day for for two weeks. Like that. This happens every year. It's gonna happen to every team. Every team's gonna have three or four guys on injured and or non-roster when the opening day rosters get set this is hockey and you know this team has talked a lot about depth they didn't change anything on the blue line they added depth to their forward ranks like you know they have to have enough they have to have enough they, they're built to have enough and if they don't you know they, then that that's that uh, that that poses far bigger questions than why is this team cursed?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we keep getting people keep texting in saying they're going to they're trading Myers, but they're not saying like they're not posing it as a question. They're saying it as a, as a declarative statement and I keep scurrying to Twitter to make sure I haven't uh, missed anything. But no, no, we do not have any information like that on uh, on Tyler Myers. But uh, yeah, if, if you do want to text that thought in, just make it look less like you're reporting a fact to me because I get this moment of panic. When it comes in i have to check to make sure i haven't yeah, missed the, anything the, the only tweets about
1: tyler myers really are me and batch saying he's absent
0: yeah um yes.
1: you know but but look i mean i would be pretty surprised
0: <laughs>
1: Yes. <laughs> i don't I, I don't know anything i think the club has definitely got their lines you know out there in the water i think they'd love to make a change to the blue line uh, i think they'd love to clear cap space um But I would be shocked if they're able to do something that impactful, you know, with a salary that large, this close to the season beginning. Um, That would just stun me. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. But we'll, I wouldn't we'll... get too worked up about that possibility. No,
0: we will monitor the situation, however. 650-650. Uh, we is will the...
1: monitor the non-situation yeah. that our texters have concocted <laughs> because they follow Taj1944 too closely on Twitter. The, the, <laughs> the situation that
0: our texters have incepted into my mind to make yeah, me panic seriously. that I'm missing something. 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. If you want to try to incept any ideas in my mind, hit me up. Uh, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or our Butus in Vancouver online at dumbarlumber.com and uh, in, in about 10 minutes we'll be joined by Jonathan Wall who of course longtime former member of the Canucks front office and we'll get into a little bit more of you know not just how these injuries impact your your team planning and your on-ice planning but also the off-ice planning and the salary cap implications that injuries at this time of year can have we'll we'll get into that conversation with Jonathan Wall as I said in about 10 minutes, but just to return a little bit to the conversation about, you know, players that still need to to step up and, and show a little bit more over the course of this next phase of training camp. And, you know, two of the guys you brought up, Dranser, and I think it's a, a well taken point. It was Jack Rathbone and Niels Hoaglander, and that's despite the fact that they've already played well. They've caught the eye of the coaching staff of management for the right reasons. Another player, you know, I don't, I don't think it's fair to quite put him quite in that category, but a, a player who has at least shown some signs for optimism, but is very much in the category of man, you you still need to see more of it. You need to see it consistency. Is Jason Dickinson for me? And I think that especially becomes the case as you know the Canucks' forward depth takes a little bit of a hit with Brock Besser going out. We'll see what the status of Ilya Mikheyev is, but you know now all of a sudden Curtis Lazar who. You probably had slotted in as as the team's fourth line center, or at least a factor on that fourth line. He's had to move up to the lineup, right? You don't know who else is going to be there. It's it's Dakota Joshua, maybe it's Phil DiGiuseppe, but Jason Dickinson, by far the most experienced veteran player uh, of those three, if that's how it ends up setting up. And, you know, Jason Dickinson, understandably, I think, for a lot of reasons, kind of a non-factor in the minds of a lot of Canucks fans coming into this season, but... As that depth is tested, any sort of return to form for Jason Dickinson could be huge, right? Whether it's, it's taking faceoffs on the fourth line, anything he can do to contribute to that team is kind of going to be a bonus. And they might need to rely on him a little bit more than they were counting on just, you know, a matter of weeks ago.
1: It's a good point well and dickinson because of for cap reasons i think he has to go on waivers almost irregardless of how he performs but he has looked good and he could help this team and he will clear if he goes on waivers no matter that's how the well he plays yeah. in the preseason so he'll go on waivers but that's just a paper transaction almost zero risk and you know we'll see I, look jason dickinson has been a really good checking forward in the nhl for a very long time and all of a sudden last year he just wasn't um i don't know how to explain that I don't I don't know what we saw um, he didn't look fast he didn't look disruptive he didn't look confident um, he couldn't kill penalties like it wasn't the same player that I've seen play live 50 times over the course of his career and genuinely generally been impressed with so um, you know I think the club's hopeful that he'll bounce back I actually think there's some expectation that he will I think he's off to a good start and we'll, and we'll sort of see where this goes hey can I I know we're I know we're gonna go to break shortly and then invite Jonathan Wall in. But I want to talk about, I want to squirrel this show and talk about something that's only tangentially related to the Canucks. Sounds but great. very much is a Canucks thing. I don't know if you saw, but I must hit my quota of Florida Panthers mentions today. Okay, so all right. Did you see the Spencer Martin three years, $4.5 million contract? Uh, Spencer Knight. Uh, that the Panthers signed. What did I say? Spencer, Spencer Martin. Martin. Right. I'm right. I'm literally watching him step off the ice right now, so excuse me. But Spencer Knight. Three years times 4.5 million. Spencer Knight was obviously drafted in Vancouver in the first round, uh, won the world junior gold medal for Team USA, had a shutout in that gold medal winning game against an absolutely loaded Team Canada squad, phenomenal college goaltender, shares an agent with Thatcher Demko. And that sort of ties in nicely with what I want to talk about. The Thatcher Demko bet that the Canucks made, I think will go down as easily easily and without much competition the best move the former regime made right it was a unprecedented bet at the time and one that at first blush i saw as risky even though i understood the upside case right demko had impressed me so much over the course of that march that month of march in 2021 and obviously in the bubble um you know and his ahl numbers were so so good as were his college numbers, that I, that I understood the bet. I just thought that there was no contract like it in hockey at the time that he signed it. And it worked, right? Demco's phenomenal and a phenomenal value for this team at five million per year for the next four, right? A, a ridiculous luxury that this club has to be able to build around, particularly once, you know, Halak's $1.25 million overage and Holpe's 2.4, uh, <laughs> sort of, or 1.5, excuse me, come off the books uh following the season right like there there's going to be a real chance for this team to be both high end in terms of their save percentage and efficient from a cap perspective in net. now the best part of the Demko bet isn't just that it's worked out for Vancouver right and you're seeing that with the Spencer Knight deal today because the Canucks rolled the dice on Demko who had you know a pretty shallow track record at the time that he signed the deal and pretty pedestrian save percentage numbers having spent all of his nhl games playing behind a disorganized defensive team right in vancouver because they made that bet on a player with very little experience and very pedestrian numbers it's not just that they now have a top goaltender locked up below market but but they've ruined the party for everyone else I've <laughs> the second the second contract goalie market Right, the say that now every goaltender, no matter how they've played, has this case. Well, look at look at my numbers compared with Demko's when he signed for five times five. Right, he's elevated the comps for that sort of class of young RFA, and that only enhances Vancouver's efficiency and cap advantage at the moment. Right, the Demko deal is so good for this team, not just because he's a good player, but because it's easy to make the case for any goaltender who showed some promise that they could be just like Thatcher Demko, making it harder for everyone else and sharpening Vancouver's efficiency edge and net for the foreseeable future. The Spencer Knight deal really sort of opened my eyes to that extra edge that the Demko contract gives this team. When I saw that news come across my Twitter feed this morning, I thought, oh boy, oh boy, this Demko deal just keeps getting better. For the Vancouver Canucks.
0: Well, and Spencer Knight is 21, right? He won't turn 22 until April to be getting. And, he, and,
1: and he's phenomenal. Yeah. Like, and there, to, there's a, well, I don't know. I have no idea. He's a goalie. I don't know anything. I'll ask. I'll ask Kevin Woodley during the break. But
0: I mean, um, he has he has the pedigree, right? <laughs> being that that rare he's high, well. high first round draft pick. But I mean, even in that from that context to be 21 and getting, you know, a 10 million dollar plus uh, contract from an NHL team as a goalie is exceptionally rare, right? Like that's so yep. rare. But I think you're right. It's 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 part. It's a new milestone, but it's also part of the evolution of how we're seeing the goaltending market uh, develop in the NHL. Well,
1: and inflate even for inexperienced yeah. goaltenders. So, from Vancouver's perspective, that's a great outcome. Another inexperienced comp that will raise the cap hits for goaltenders while they're locked in for to cost certainty for the next you know, four years with Demco And that's sort of like the inverse of what we're seeing with Elias Petterson, right? As guys like Cairo and Robert Thomas and Tim Stutzla and Josh Norris and like all this like caliber of players that we all know are not quite up to Pettersson's uh, standard. Although Cairo is pretty incredible and, and so is Robert Thomas. Um, you know, as those guys come in at eight plus and as McKinnon breaks what we've seen in terms of um, cap hits and, and, you know, Austin Matthews is going to be the first guy to, to hit 14 million AAV, I'm sure, on his next deal, right? There's, um, you know, at the same pressures that are going to hurt the Canucks at center and at forward when Elias Pettersson is up following this year are in their favor in net as everyone else is subject to inflationary pressures that the team will be excluded from for the duration of this Demco deal.
0: Uh, it's Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Former member of the Canucks front office Jonathan Wall will join us <laughs> next. I, I want to say I didn't just give credit to the previous regime because we're about to have Jay Wall on the program. <laughs> it I want to say well. I just,
1: it did work out well. I, I've, I've gussed him up, so uh, <laughs> Jay Wall coming on to discuss cap machinations and roster management during training camp, which gets pretty tough
0: as injuries mount. No, which they are for Vancouver at the moment. No doubt about it. Uh, that's coming up next. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. welcome back final segment of another special supersized bonus edition of canucks hour here on sportsnet 650 with jamie dodd and my co-host thomas trance uh, canucks hour brought to you by avenue machinery and douglas lake equipment your kubota all-star team avenue machinery.ca DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Drancer is live at UBC. I am coming to you live from the Kintec studio and we are now very pleased to be joined on the line. He is a longtime former longtime member of the Canucks front office, Jonathan Wall. Jonathan, thanks very much for talking to us today. How are you? I'm doing great. Happy to
2: be here, guys. Thank you.
0: Yeah, we're really excited to have you on. And, you know, just from a big picture perspective, because I think we, we so often think from the outside looking in as the summer, as the really busy time for the front office, right? It's it's the draft, it's free agency. You're assembling a new roster together. But at this time, during training camp, what's it like from a, from a front office's member's perspective?
2: Um, panic, terror. Um, no, I'm kidding. But it, it 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 can be because you're you're you built your plan in the summer and you've got time to work through things and you've got you know a lot of outs that you can you can do. And I I, I kind of always thought of that you know in, in sort of a poker term, like you try to have as many outs as you can. And then as you go through the season and all of a sudden, or you go through the summer, you start training camp. You all of a sudden have some injuries. Um, you have some players that maybe are performing at a level you didn't think they were. And then you're trying to figure out. Sort of on a day-to-day basis, what your outs are, and um, you know you would be meeting with your medical staff. You know, I used to meet with them two to three times a day, uh, every day during training camp, just to make sure I completely understood where all the players were at, uh, just so there weren't no any surprises, and just trying to you know push them on timelines for for players that that might affect your plan. And then you're also meeting with the coaches, and they're having their opinions on on certain players and how they're performing. So it's just trying to be flexible having all the information in front of you and being being flexible and and being able to to provide the information that's needed
0: it is a big part of it just kind of trying to map out every possible eventuality so you you at least have a maybe a sliver of an idea what you might do before it comes down but I imagine even then you know there's always going to be things that come up that that nobody anticipated
2: right well absolutely and you've, you've got those things that that do come up in in training camp and you know, I think we've talked about before, you've got your your players maybe on two ways or players that have exposure on your cap. And, you know, it's hard because you, you want to give them a fair shot to make the team. You want to give them a fair shot to prove themselves. But every time they go on the ice, you're increasing your exposure to a potential cap situation. So you're trying to find that balance with the management and the coaches. Um, you know, from my standpoint, it was always more sort of cut and dry. It wasn't as much about the emotional, about the personal side. It was just, you know, the numbers and trying to make the make the numbers work. Um, but you are trying to build as many outs as you can in your system. And there may be a situation where you go into training camp thinking you're going to be in in-season in LTI. You're going to have a really good capture and you're going to be able to start there. And then a couple of things change and all of a sudden you're looking at Maybe going to offseason LTI and and secretly hoping that maybe there's a way to get another player onto your roster. Maybe if another player gets hurt, and you're trying to find that that last little bit that that makes the puzzle fit together. Jaywal,
1: as you go through figuring out what a roster looks like on opening day for for the opening day deadline, um, how much does a player who maybe costs, you know, 70K more, right? Like one guy's 750, one guy's 820, um, something like that, some some gap like that. How much does that shape some of the decisions that teams make at the wire uh, over Canadian Thanksgiving?
2: Well, I think I think it does. And, and again, I always sat in the chair where, where my, you know, I was looking at, I mean, I had, you know, opinions and discussions on, on players. But again, at the end of the day, my job was to create and, 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 and support the management with a plan that gave us the best possible combination of, you know, on the financial side. So absolutely. And, and you just don't know what's going to happen down the road. And you don't want to make a mistake or make a judgment in October that's all of a sudden going to cost you in March at the deadline because it gets mm. magnified then. So you're really trying to find a way to get that, that perfect fit but also deferring to the management and the coaches where they're going to have their own values and opinions that are, you know, equally valid or more valid because that's going to be the performance on the ice. So it's really trying to try to create that balance and giving everyone the information they need to make those decisions.
1: How tough is and and obviously I'm asking this in the context of Brock Besser, who it's announced is out three to four weeks uh, following hand surgery, successful hand surgery yesterday. That's sort of a length of time where, you know, it could be less than a week into the season. So IR is maybe not perfect. It's definitely not long enough for LTI. Um, how tough is it when you get one of those injuries that may stretch into a little bit of the campaign, uh, but not long enough <laughs> to warrant, you know, the the approach where you could replace their cap
2: hit? Yeah, I mean, those are the worst. And, and I want to be really sensitive we're talking about people and humans and you never want to wish for a longer-term injury or something but those short-term one to two-week injuries are the worst in training camp Um, again with all sensitivity to the players if someone has a more longer-term injury it allows the planning process to be easier it's those day-to-day week-to-week injuries that really make it challenging to plan but again someone who might be able to week into the season all of a sudden you might be able to use uh, off-season LTI because now you've got instead of having 23 players on your roster against your cap, you may have 24, and then if there's another player injured, you may have 25, and all of a sudden the math may actually work out way better um, to, to look at look at it in a different approach.
0: Uh, in conversation with Jonathan Wall, former longtime member of the Canucks front office, here on Sportsnet 650 Canucks Hour with Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drantz, and. You know, I mean, we're talking about all of the different scenarios and the machinations that, uh, that the Canucks or any team might have to go through to kind of maximize their LTIR space. And, you know, obviously, from a certain perspective, it's, it's kind of obvious why you want to do that. But just take us through some of the nitty-gritty of why it is so important for an NHL team to really capture every last dime they can of that LTIR.
2: Well, absolutely. So, you know, if you have a million dollars in cap space, and a $3 million LTI player, you don't end up with $4 million in LTI space. So what every team's trying to do is they're trying to fill that that salary bucket as full as you can to get as close to the, the the cap, the upper limit. And then when you invoke LTI, you have that, say, that $3 million. But if you've been able to fill that bucket right near the top, and then you can remove a couple players from that bucket, all of a sudden that that $3 million you send maybe two players down that were in that initial capture, all of a sudden you've got, uh, you know, you may go from 3 million to 5 million in LTI space. So you're really, tr- they, don't, they don't get combined. You either have your cap space or your LTI space. So it's imperative that you try to get as close to that that upper limit as possible. And that way, when you capture, you, you do end up maximizing the space that you have available to you.
0: And we've started to kind of think about LTIR now, especially, Jonathan, for competitive teams as, as a weapon, right? We all know about Tampa Bay and all of that. It's a way they can kind of massage the cap in their favor. But there's also some, some major drawbacks to being in LTIR. What are, what are some of the negatives that, that come with that for an NHL team?
2: Well, for sure. I mean, the, the, the big one is you're not really tolling daily cap space. So if you have a million dollars in LTI space, you have a mil- you can recall a million-dollar player. Whereas over the course of the season, if you have a million, dollar, uh, million dollars in daily cash space, I think when you get to the deadline, you may end up between four and a half and $5 million player that you can acquire. So basically that space sort of builds over time. And the other issue with being an LTI is it makes it really hard to get out of LTI because generally if you're an LTI, you're a team like the Canucks, you've maybe got Kozmenko and put Kohl's in. And, and I don't want to speak specifically about Vancouver just as an example, but maybe you're you're going to accumulate some performance bonuses. So all of a sudden, you're just pushing the spending from one year to the next, and it makes it really challenging to get out of LTI. So it feels like you're always sort of um, up against it. You're having to kind of borrow from next year's to pay for this year's, and it just makes it really hard to get out of LTI down the road. Jonathan,
1: with, you know, injuries mounting right i mean we don't know what's going on but tyler myers is now absent uh travis Dermott just missed um or just left the canucks practice with an apparent injury you've got ilya Makayev who was evaluated further yesterday and his his situation uncertain and then besser of course has gone down for surgery um with players you know like besser right for example let's start there but with players like besser and then with injuries mounting how do management teams balance sort of the need to make sure that a player like Besser is able to return as quickly as he's ready because he's important to this team versus some of the pressures that come with needing to maximize that capture? How, how is that typically balanced by organizations?
2: Well, I mean, I think the one thing to, to remember too is, you know, in the summer, there's so much talk about cap and how teams are going to make it work and everything, but the teams generally know maybe more than the public or the media does. Right. So they may have information that they have where they know, you know, they have a better sense on the timeline or they know a player is going to miss camp. So, you know, they they know how they're going to reach their opening day capture. So I think the teams know more than that. I mean, it, it was always a balance, again, between is it worth sacrificing, you know, two wins at the beginning of the season to try to maximize your LPI space? It's just trying to find that balance of doing – what's right with the with the information you have. And, you know, there are times, you know, even during the course of the season where you're looking at a player and you're trying to decide, do we IR him and risk maybe losing a game of, of his or do we risk having to play shorthanded if we don't have the player? So you're always trying to balance sort of the short-term performance base with sort of your long-term plan for the season. You just really don't want to look back at, at a key point in the season and wish you had done something different at the beginning because you can't go back and change it.
1: And, and a last one for me, you know, with some of the rules that pertain to the opening day roster, right, where, you know, you can call a guy back up, but you can't send a guy down off of your roster, for example, right? How much, how much weight do management groups put, and how is it discussed in assessing, like, waiver claim risk in making some of those final cuts, right? The, the idea that a guy is... Perhaps more likely to be claimed than another. How much does that influence some of the final decisions that team make, teams make ahead of you know getting down to their 23-man roster?
2: I mean, all that stuff, all that stuff is taken into consideration. You never want to lose a player on waivers for nothing. I think it's important to remember too that you know generally these decisions don't happen. You know, if the waiver deadline is noon, they don't happen at 11:30. You know, if right. you if you sense there's a waiver issue you coming, you're working the phones. You know, throughout camp, uh, the agent is probably working the phones as well. You're trying to move the player. So at the end of the day, if it comes to a point where a player does have to go on waivers, you've generally exhausted most of the opportunity to try to, to maximize that asset or to get anything back from that asset. So, you, you know, you're again, you're trying to balance that. And, you know, again, it's a balance of risking being short at the end of the season with a player and if you've got two players that are, you know, neck and neck and one of them makes it fit, fit better. Sometimes you have to be a bit ruthless and make that decision to sort of build the best team you can over the longest period as opposed to trying to get the best roster maybe for overnight or the first couple of games.
0: A couple more minutes here with uh, Jonathan Wall on Canucks Hour Sportsnet 650. And just on the waivers topic, Jonathan, you know, if it's something I wanted to ask as well, because, I think probably a lot of fans are in the same boat as me where I never seem to have a, a totally solid grasp on who's going to clear and who might get claimed. It always sometimes it seems like, wow, I'm shocked this player didn't get claimed. And other times there's a player who who gets picked up that I didn't necessarily anticipate. How much certainty is there within a front office when the decision to put a player on waivers is, right? Do you have do you feel like you have a really solid sense of we're going to lose them or they're going to get through or, or is there an element of kind of, you know, biting your nails to see what happens when the, when the waiver
2: report comes out? Yeah, I mean, the, the general rule I find with waivers is every player that you want to get claimed will clear <laughs> and every player you want to clear gets claimed. I mean, it's just, it's really hard to know. Some, some GMs will, will, will call you in advance, say, hey, we're looking at claiming this guy where it's not a, so it's not a surprise, just a courtesy call some you know sometimes you'll just you know the 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 league sends out their update and you'll see that your player was claimed or cleared but again you know it's really important to understand that none of these decisions happen sort of immediately they're not snap decisions you sort of built your roster and then the gms are always talking and uh you know you're trying to get something for that asset if you can and it might be where a team needs your waiver eligible player, and they have a waiver exempt player that's already below the line, or they may have a player that's already cleared waivers, and so you're trying to find any way to get something for that asset. But very rarely will a player just end up on waivers where there hasn't been an effort made to to make a trade or find another way to to move them along.
0: Uh, hey, Jonathan, just before we let you go, you know, I know it's a couple weeks in the rearview mirror now, but there, we saw the return of the Young Stars Tournament to Penticton, yeah. and I know you're still involved in that yeah. tournament what was it like to uh, to have it back and have that event back up and running now
2: well it was awesome honestly it was it was so great here i mean the the, the staff at the soec in Penticton did an unreal job getting this back up and running uh the support from the business community and the fans and just the community in the okanagan in general was outstanding and it, it put on a great show everyone saw some great hockey Uh, The team's really enjoyed themselves. So we're working hard right now to try to get this to be a permanent fixture uh, up here where everyone knows, you know, the second week or third week in September, they're coming to Penticton to see the young stars. And it it really becomes just, uh, you know, an event that's on the calendar every year. And once we do that, we can start building it out. And we've got some ideas for, for stuff that we can do in the community, whether it's, you know, officials clinics or a chance to speak to some of the you know the the alumni that come back for the tournament and really try to build this into a celebration of hockey for the Okanagan because it is such a great event. It's a beautiful time of year to be in the Okanagan and it's just a great time for everybody. Uh, sounds good to me
0: to make it a regular fixture on the yeah. uh, on the calendar, Jonathan. Yeah. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Uh, hopefully we can yeah. chat again soon. Anytime, guys. Thank you. Uh, that is Jonathan Wall, who of course was a long-time fixture in the Canucks front office still involved uh, in the Penticton Young Stars tournament as well. Final few minutes of the show here Canucks hour Sportsnet 650 and transfer uh, Marks and Gibson's Texan uh, who's 650's resident cap expert. It all seems more confusing than the EA Sports NHL series makes it seem and slightly it, it certainly is slightly. and that's why it's good to have uh, access to somebody like Jonathan Wall who's been in the trenches pouring over all of this minutiae and 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 decisions that seem like minutia, but can end up having massive ripple effects. Uh, just in that conversation, you get a sense of how immensely complicated this time of year is for front offices.
1: Oh, it's a, a nightmare. It's so complicated. And, you know, the way that teams have to account for injuries, I think, is really poorly understood. You know, the, here's the other one. You remember the EA series created confusion about uh, among people about... Two-way players yes, being waiver exempt, right? That was like the big thing. Was in EA Sports franchise mode, GM mode, or whatever. You know, players who are on two-way deals clear waivers, no problem. Players on one-way deals don't. Uh, and and so people confused what one and two-way mean, right? They're really a reference to how a player is compensated above and below the line. But fans for years, because of EA, thought that you know it, it applied to waiver exemption status. It does not. And right now we have an LTI variant of this. And this comes from CapFriendly's Armchair GM mode, right? If you use CapFriendly's Armchair GM mode, you put a contract on LTI at any point and it just sort of disappears from your overall cap number. That's not really how it works, right? There's all sorts of complicated things, including, you know, uh, the way that bonuses factor into a player's cap it if they begin below the line and, and on and on, right? It's why, you know, if you're making paper transactions, on on cap-friendly's armchair GM mode to try and maximize the Furlan capture, you know, Vasily Podkolzin and Kuzmenko aren't really options to go down and come back up on opening day because it, their their cap hits effectively double. And while armchair GM mode is a fantastic tool, without a real sort of working understanding of how it actually works and how teams actually behave, you know, you can um, run into things that aren't quite accounted for. So you have to be careful, even in even in using that you know for your own curiosity at home a guy like Jonathan Wall and his expertise and we'll try to have him on regularly uh, can really help fans get an understanding of exactly how their team is positioned and what options remain to them.
0: You know what I think the worst sin of the EA uh, NHL series though was in terms of you know impacting understanding of the that, sport.
1: That Thatcher Demko is the sixth overall <laughs> goalie tied. Sorry, behind John Gibson in overall rating. No, agreed. No, I mean, I, As I think I said, ridiculous.
0: As I think I said recently, <laughs> I could do a whole hour on the EA rating systems, but no, that's not actually what I want to. <laughs> But I haven't played the game in a couple of years, but I remember certainly for so long, they have the player archetypes, right? So a forward is either a playmaker or a sniper or a grinder or whatever. And if you have, like, a playmaker, a sniper, and a grinder on the same line, they all get big chemistry bonuses because you've, like, mixed and matched, and you have one of each on the same line. And, look, obviously there's something to be said for, you know, a guy who's good at passing and a guy who's good at shooting, but, come on, it doesn't work like that. That always frustrated me. And I remember, like, years ago on, you know... Internet forums, people saying, well, you got to have a grinder on this line with these two skilled players. I'm like, no, you don't necessarily. Just have some Who, skilled players. Who's going to get the puck? <laughs> that always frustrated me. It's like, just because that's how it works in the NHL game, it doesn't mean that's how it works in real life. So anyways, that's uh, that's one of the many sins Fair. of the EA NHL series. Uh, by the way, I-, I want to apologize to everyone because... Uh, Apparently, I-, I gave a couple of hearty throat clears when I thought my mic was off uh, coming back from break and maybe during the Jonathan Wall interview. So I was planning to blame it on you, Drance, but uh, enough people in the text message inbox uh, have have pointed the finger at me that knew, I will. Knew it was you. They knew. Yes, they knew. They could tell. They're like, oh, that sounds like Jamie. Doesn't sound like Drancer." So uh, I'll, I'll put my hand up and take the blame for that one. Final few minutes of the show here. 6.50, 6.50. Is you, the, you know it's
1: not noble
0: to take the blame for something you actually did. Yeah, right? sure it, you is. Know, this, you know, this this it is. This
1: isn't. No, it's, no, no. it's you're it's, you're you're
0: stepping up and you're taking accountability raise, for your own actions. Raise, raise your
1: expectations, man. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> <laughs> hey, so um, so the Canucks are doing power play work today. Always one of my favorite practice days of the year. So let's go. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, what I was convinced was a terrible mistake coming to practice and doing radio. Uh, well worth it. And actually, I think it worked pretty well. I'm surprised by how drama-free this broadcast has been from a technical standpoint. So, here we go. We've got power play one. We've got Kuzmenko jumping into Brock spot at the net front. Working with the predictable four guys up high. Bo Horvat, JT Miller, Quinn Hughes, and Elias Petterson. No big deal. Power play two. We have two defensemen. Yeah. We have both Jack Rathbone and... Oliver ekman Larson, Jack Rathbone playing the forward spot at the right circle. Uh, we've got Pearson at the net front, Garland in the bumper, and Niels Hoaglander getting a big look um, on that left circle. So no Vasily Podkolzin on power play two, which is interesting. However, also interesting, Colson is among the penalty-killing ah. groups, uh, the penalty-killing forwards working uh, these forwards through their drills. I don't know how much to read into that because we don't have Ilya Mikhaev, right? right? And we have a bunch of penalty-killing options who are working, for obvious reasons, with the power play groups, including Elias Pettersson, Bo Horvat, and Tanner Pearson, and JT Miller, right? Four guys you'd expect to be, you know, above, the, above Vasily Podkolzin anyway on the depth chart of PK options. But nonetheless, Podkolzin moved into a PK spot after Ilya Mikhaev left the lineup uh, on Sunday, right? And now we see him here working in a penalty killing role as they put these potential power play units through their paces. Uh, There's something there, but there's also something in him not being selected, particularly with Besser absent to work
0: on the power play. Uh, I'm kicking myself because uh, we got to wrap up here, but it, when we were just talking about power play adjustments yesterday, I almost, almost suggested we could see Rathbone and OEL both on power play too, but alas, I, I lost my chance to look smart on that one. Uh, we'll talk more about those power play units and some of the special teams work tomorrow on the show. Right now, the people show. Bick Nazar and Janda is coming up. It's the home of the Canucks. Sportsnet 650.